how does the design of and the interaction with robots affect a person's empathy? I'm Tanya Hall, and joining me is Dr. Kate Darling, Research Specialist at the MIT Media Lab. Welcome, Kate. Thanks for having me. So what do you do in your role at the MIT Media Lab? So I work on human-robot interaction from a social, legal, and ethical perspective. Which is a topic we talk about a lot because we're moving so fast in technology uh, that it's something that we need to be looking into. So thank you for doing that job. So as a robot ethicist, one of the questions you've addressed is whether humans have emotional connections to robots. What's your conclusion? Well, the thing that has always drawn me to robots personally is that I'm just fascinated with the fact that people will treat them like they're alive, even though they know perfectly well that they're just machines. And there are a bunch of different reasons why we might do that. There's science fiction and pop culture that primes us. There's the novelty of this technology coming into shared spaces that we're not quite used to. But really what fascinates me is that we seem to be biologically primed to want to personify robots because they're these physically moving objects in our space that our brains seem hardwired to kind of project agency onto. And we really love to anthropomorphize them, to project our own, you know, human-like qualities and traits and behaviors onto them. So that's really fascinating to me. And I have done some work around empathy and violence towards robots. And it turns out that people actually empathize with them, um, spe specifically with very lifelike robots when they get, when they get hurt. Um, and uh, it's just, it's really interesting to see the ways that people will treat them sort of like, almost like animals, I would say. Not like other people, but like animals and certainly very differently than other devices. You made a point about saying lifelike, and life could be anything. It doesn't have to be human. In fact, tell us a, the story of how a military officer stopped a test of a mind-detecting robot and how that relates to human-robot interaction. Yeah, that's, oh my gosh, that's an amazing story. And there are many of them, but this was one that was in, the, in an article in the Washington Post in 2007. So the military was testing this new um, robot that was designed to diffuse landmines. And the way it worked was it had a bunch of legs. It was like a stick insect with legs. And it would walk around the minefield. And every time it stepped on a mine, one of the, one of the legs would blow up. And it would just continue on the remaining legs until it had blown up all the legs or all the mines. And the colonel who was in charge of overseeing the exercise, like you said, he, he stopped it. He called it off. And he said, sorry, we can't use this robot because he said it was too inhumane to watch this thing drag itself along, kind of crippled on its remaining legs. Um, it was just too traumatizing. So yeah, we even like hardened military <laughs> officials will become emotionally attached to the robots that they work with. I mean, they're in like high intensity, like sometimes very emotional situations. So it can make sense that they will bond with the machines that they're working with. But you see even in like regular households, people who have their Roomba vacuum cleaner, over 80% of Roombas have names and people will feel bad for the Roomba when it gets stuck somewhere. 
people will send in the Roomba for repair and they'll get the offer of a brand new replacement Roomba and they'll say, no, we want you to send Meryl Sweep back to us. So even just a very simple robot can evoke this in people. And then we have robots that are designed, you know, in, more, in a more biologically inspired way or social robots that are specifically designed to get us to treat them like social actors. And it gets really, really interesting really fast. Oh my God, that's totally me. Tell us what you observed and learned, in fact, from asking groups of people to harm, you know, a, a baby dinosaur robot compared to harming insect looking robots. Okay, so that wasn't a direct comparison. That was a workshop that then inspired later research on the hex bugs, but it was super interesting. So we took these really cute baby dinosaur robots called Pleos, is a toy that came out in 2007 that mimics pain really well. So if you hold it up by the tail or you strike it, it'll start crying. And they're really cute and have these big eyes and stuff. And um, my friend Hannes Gosselt and I did a workshop at a conference where we gave groups of people these baby dinosaur robots and had them interact with them and name them and play with them. And then we gave them like hammers and hatchets and told them to torture and kill them. And it was so dramatic. Like we did not expect it to be as dramatic as it was. Everyone totally refused and we had to kind of like force them to, to do it in the end. But just the reactions from people in that workshop made me feel like this is something that has to be studied you know, in a more rigorous scientific setting. And for the scientific experiment, I was working with my colleagues at the Media Lab, um, Kalash Nandi, who was a student here at the time, and Cynthia Brazil. And we had hex bugs, which move in a lifelike way like an insect. Most parents know this toy. Um, so instead of like something really cute and evocative, we chose something more basic. And we had people smash them with mallets and we were uh, timing how long they would hesitate to hit the robot depending on different factors. So for example, would they hesitate more if we gave the robots a name? Would they hesitate more if they have you know, higher tendencies for empathy? So we did psychological empathy testing with people and we found a connection um, or a correlation at least, you know, people with very low empathic concern who scored low in the test they didn't much care about the hex bugs, they would smash them, uh, particularly, um, oh, and, and the high empathy people would, would hesitate more, and, that, and they would hesitate more, particularly when we had like a name and a backstory. We said, this is Frank, and Frank's favorite color is red, and he likes to play. The high empathy people would not want to smash, or like some of them even refused. So uh, it was a really interesting experiment that kind of showed that we might be able to measure people's empathy using robots. So it obviously seems like interacting with robots can change a person's empathy. In fact, we saw that, you know, in fiction, right? In a movie with Joaquin Phoenix, where it wasn't even a physical robot, it was artificial intelligence. Does your research expand to this area as well? Or is that something you're looking into? It needs to. So there's, you know, a body of research now in human robot interaction that, is, that looks at people's empathy and how they interact with robots, but we have not answered the question whether people's empathy changes, like whether, you know, robots can be used to uh, significantly improve people's empathy specifically. Like we know that robots can help with other types of therapy, but empathy we don't know. And we don't know if it can be desensitizing to people to be really violent towards lifelike robotic objects, which is another question. And that's another thing that we've seen in fiction and, you know, for example, the show Westworld. Um, you know, is it okay to, you know, be violent towards a robot that looks like a human, whether or not it actually has consciousness, or does that say something about you as a person, or could it even be desensitizing if you do it a lot? And particularly 
you know, with children, we might want to be a little bit cautious as we introduce this technology and because um, we don't, you know, we don't know. And, and children, um, as they're, they're very smart. They know that something is a robot and another thing is an animal. But just like adults, it can get muddled in their subconscious when they're interacting with a physical thing. So it's a question that we absolutely need to explore as these technologies come into people's homes and workplaces and lives. And to your point, these inter these robots, this, these artificial intelligence uh, things, um, they intersect with various areas of our life. You mentioned children, certainly other parts of our life. What are the most important factors to consider uh, when designing robots that will work closely with human peers or customers? I think that there are a bunch of things to consider, and one of the you know more obvious ones in the in the robot ethics community is privacy and data security because, you know, the way that robots <laughs> learn or are able to, you know, um, develop behaviors or make decisions is by collecting a lot of data or having access to a lot of data. Um, that's how, how they're currently structured. And so I think that privacy is a big issue, but I personally am also interested in the design factors that have to do with this anthropomorphism, right? You know, is it what purpose is your robot serving? Is your robot, um, you know, working with autistic children or trying to replace animal therapy? Then yes, you want to make it so that people will treat it more like an animal than a device. But if you are making a military robot that is, you know, used for bomb disposal, you might want to think about the fact that people might treat it more like a pet than a device and that that can be anything from inefficient to dangerous. And you know, there are some considerations in the workplace. I'm not sure that people integrating robots into the workplace or the companies making them have fully grasped the potential for design to actually influence how much people trust a robot or how much they enjoy working with it. Or even something as simple as naming the robot, what type of name you give it can make a huge difference to people. Dr. Kate Darling, Research Specialist at the MIT Media Lab. If somebody wants to connect with you, Kate, if they want to find out more about your work, how can they do that? Um, probably Twitter. I'm active on Twitter. My handle is at grok, G-R-O-K underscore. Sounds good. Thanks again, Kate. And if you guys want to find more of my interviews, you can do that right here or go to tanyahall.net. Thanks for watching.